Hi, this is Holly McKay, and today we are doing a special Substack audio with my photographer who you've seen in all the pictures and all the posts. It is Jake Simkin, my fellow Australian, who has been a combat reporter for a really long time, so we are going to talk to him about some of his wild adventures. Say hello, Jake. G'day. <laughs> of course, he's doing the really, really Aussie accent for you. Um so, Jake, tell me how you, uh, question of the day, how everybody, you know, everyone wants to be a combat photographer. How did you get involved? Um, it came really just out of fate, really. I kind of um, travelled, well, the starting off was Bandar Aceh in Indonesia after the tsunami uh, in uh, around Boxing Boxing Day, the day after Christmas, um, I guess Americans don't really have Boxing Day, but um, about three hundred thousand people died in, in Indonesia, and that was two thousand two thousand two thousand and four. Anyway, um, I wanted a change in life. I worked mainly as a commercial cinematographer. I made movies. Um, but I wanted something more in life and I wanted to understand what it meant to live on this earth. And so um, I made my way to Banda Aceh. I got a job working for an NGO. What I didn't realise that Indonesia in Banda Aceh had been in a civil war for over 70 years. Um, so my first introduction to the day of going to this orphanage was these whole bunch of rebels come running and jumping over this uh, gate and then they're chased after by the Indonesian army who go smashing through the gate and they just started firing at the rebels that were running off into the jungle. And I was like, holy fuck. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was kind of like my first... Shit got real. Like, shit got real, like within the first day. But it was very... Um, I guess a traumatic experience, sort of uh, seeing the amount of dead people, uh, just, yeah, they were, were literally all crushed into these into their homes. Um, people said that the tsunami was like 50 metres high as it came crashing in from the shore and then it literally destroyed five kilometres deep of every single home. Uh, yeah in its path. Um, yeah, it's not a, a particular sort of scene I was, I think, ready for. Um, but that sort of didn't deter me. And then at the end of the day, I spent six months there. I learned a lot about humanitarian photography and trying to sort of find life in really hard spot. Now I worked on a lot of documentaries in uh, many different sort of like human sort of like subjects from gay rights to you know human rights to Aboriginal rights in Australia but I really wanted to go overseas and really push the limit. So there was a documentary on women's rights around the world uh, which was called Finding Bibi. Unfortunately the documentary never got finished but I ended up in India and decided to sell my return ticket and I bought myself a motorcycle and I rode around India for over a year and I also went to Pakistan just uh, 
working for different NGOs. Uh, I'd worked for Mother Teresa in Calcutta and then rode my motorcycle all the way up to Manali. Um, I photographed uh, from acid burn victims, mainly women who, you know, denied getting married or these women basically, they, you know, refused something from their husband and maybe the mother of their husband threw acid in their face and, you know, for the rest of their life they had to live with their husband and the family. Treasures. It was fucking horrible. Um, so I worked a lot for this NGO called Smile Again Foundation and photographed all of these women. Um, I helped teach kids how to use cameras that lived in slumlands where... You know, they're women, you know, they're children of prostitutes. Um, they live very hard lives. They were like sniffing glue. Um, yeah, and these were kids that just had nothing in India. So what brought you to Afghanistan initially? What year was that? I initially came to Afghanistan in uh, 2005, actually, uh, 2006, uh, where I was with in Pakistan. And then uh, I had a brief introduction to Peshawar and the Afghan refugees that were living in Peshawar. And I actually came to Afghanistan in early 2008 to work on a documentary called The, the Extreme Tourist. And it was, a, it was a, like an original pilot show by Tolo Television, which was... Uh, probably the leading television station in Afghanistan. It was funded by the Americans. There was a lot of money put into it. But there was a lot of money to put into, I guess, personnel and stuff that come could come and help teach the Afghan people how to make reality TV shows and travel shows and all of these different programs. So I did this show for six months and... I fell in love with Afghanistan, and it was, yeah, I mean, it's a hard place. What do you think it is about Afghanistan that you just love it or you hate it? Yeah. I always joke about Afghanistan as an abusive husband, and, you know, you love your husband and stuff, but, you know, it, being an abusive husband, it's going to put you down at the end of the day, and you're just going to feel like it's shit. It's hard to leave sometimes. But, yeah, it's hard to leave your abusive husband, right. you know. Um, so, you know, I would be in love with Afghanistan for four or five months and then there'd be times where it's just like, fuck, I can't change some people's lives or the well, culture we just can't becomes you hard. Can't, yeah, you can't change Afghanistan, really. Yeah. I mean, increments, but... And you leave and you go and try and do some other stories and things over, you know, into another country. So, you know, I worked in Somalia, worked in Libya, worked in Syria. But it's just like, oh, I miss Afghanistan and maybe things are going to be better. And, uh, yeah, this project or assignment's finished and I'll head back to Afghanistan. So it was this love-hate relationship for six years, basically. Um, and I did some amazing things. And then there was just things that were just so so difficult to change. And how... <coughs> sorry, I'm having coughing fit. I smoke too much shisha. Um, how much do you... I mean, do you still have that feeling now in Afghanistan since we did this trip? And, and Jake and I came in before the fall. Um, so that was the beginning of August. And we thought we would be documenting kind of the the, the withdrawal of the US and the government after, but... 
it turned out the Taliban took it way quicker than we could have expected. Um, and then we've been here for several months since then. So I, I guess, how do you how do you feel about it now? Um, so I always think of my life as in chapters and there's this chapter of my life called Afghanistan. And to me, I was hoping to find some closure and this might be possibly the last trip that I do, but I say this and I'll probably be back in Afghanistan in, in a couple more months or so. It's um, different this time, though. But it's much it's different. Something about it is different. It's much different. It's, uh, it's basically we're here documenting the first three, four months of the rule of the Taliban. And I guess Taliban 2.0 is a much different uh, Taliban from the first first time the Taliban went to power. And it was interesting because... But the world is just a different place now. We have social media and media outlets and there's just much more awareness than I think there was in the 90s. Yeah, and I feel like the Taliban, they've grown up with all of the media and they've grown up with all of this social interaction. I mean, there's social, I mean, most of the young guys and stuff are socially inept because they just haven't hung out with women. Um, you know, they're uneducated and they need to be taught and they're learning quite rapidly. Uh, they follow orders well. They, fought, they do follow orders really well. All of their leadership have given them orders and they follow it to the T. You know, like they've had fun. They've enjoyed, you know, going to the zoo and going on the amusement parks. But, you know, their leadership says... You can't go do this fun stuff while carrying guns. You, know? you look like Don't an do idiot. It. You look like an idiot. People are making fun of you. And they stop doing that. Like, they send the lowest guy in the group to hold all of the guns while they go and have fun. So they've learned their lesson, um, if they're going to be. Uh, and they've learned to be told to be polite and to uh, gain the people's trust. Um and it was funny, like I was spending, I went to the passport office and the passport office is just, there's, it's, it's closed again now. They closed it oh, today because the printing machines broke. <laughs> they didn't keep up. <laughs> anyway, there's about 3,000 to 10,000 people trying to get new passports so they can leave. And the lines are terribly long. Um, on the men's side and stuff, the Taliban are very ruthless. If you try to break the line and stuff, they drag you and they, ch- you know, they uh, hit you with rubber mallets and, you know, they have, they have things that sort of hit you and whip you. But on the women's side, they had the mishwak, which is like this little, like, brush for your cleaning your teeth. And... The guy is like trying to tap the women. It's like, please, please go into the line. You know, it's like, this is what, like, you know, in a hadith and stuff, it says you can only hit your wife with a stone in underneath your arm and your mishwak. So you can't hit her hard and let the stone drop. So they tried to, like, just basically tap these women and just say, please, just please get back into the line. Just please. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of funny because it's just, you know, they're following certain lines and stuff to the Quran, and it's like, okay, this is how I should behave with women. Um, and it's quite contradictory because, you know, sometimes obviously in the news and stuff, you, you know, you get the worst of what the Taliban is. And, you know, I don't want to be this person that whitewashes the Taliban and stuff, but it's an interesting time because this is the first time that they've 
been the ability to govern properly. I guess when they well, typically were typically they don't look at women. Typically, I mean, in the checkpoints when we're going through, they'll see me in the car and we get waved straight straight through. So, for them to even be tapping a woman is kind of interesting to me. Yeah, and they don't want to do it either. Like yeah. they're just like, I don't. They don't want to be able to confront this woman who's very angry, who wants to get her passport. You know, um, you know, and same with the protesting and stuff. Um, you know, they don't. They don't want to interact, but you know, you, you actually could physically see like women are actually like hitting the Taliban. Of course, they're gonna probably hit back at the end of the day, mm. but um, they don't want to. They don't want. They don't want that confrontation. Mm. Um, and you know, because it's just like they're being told by their higher ups, you know, please respect everybody. You know, try and make a difference. You know, show that you are not who they were, you know, once were. Um, I do, at the end of the day, would like to see women's rights return and, you know, women being able to go back to school and have education and believe in their dreams and stuff. And I think this will happen, but it's a lot of fight between the old school Taliban and the new Taliban mm-hmm. um, and their sort of rulership sort of like structure they are, the Taliban understand that they do need to change for international recognition and all of these things. And I really believe they really want international recognition. I mean, they've, you know, everyone was pretty much scared at the start, thinking that, you know, hands were going to be cut off and all of these, you know, horrible things weren't going to happen. But you can't really rule a society if you've cut off, you know, pretty much half of everybody's hand, you know, half of They're the population's hands. They're holding international recognition. So, you know, um, but, you know, I would like to see some sort of reconciliation at the end of the day, that the Taliban have a national day of reconciliation and say, I am sorry, you know, and let's, you know, I don't know, make a day out of it, have picnics or whatever, um, and just show that uh, we can get past this violence that has happened for the last 20 years and hopefully move on to a more peaceful country. So what do you think of... So we've obviously done a lot of stories, we've been to a lot of places, we've covered you know, Afghanistan in so many different aspects on this trip, but what... I mean, what have you found to be the most eye-opening or the most interesting of sort of the things that we've worked on so far? I mean... Come in. Aha. We're getting our shisha or hookah or kailum, as they say in Afghanistan, which the Taliban don't allow. But it still happens in cafes. I think people have this idea where everything is completely prohibited, but it's not. We have it at home and we also go to cafes sometimes and have it and... And that's not just in Kabul, it's in pretty much every city I've managed to find it. Yep. Uh, Kabul, mm. Kandahar, Jalalabad, uh, I think I, where we are, Bamiyan. I found it everywhere almost, except for maybe Noristan and yep. Kuna. <laughs> uh, and it really comes down to that they don't want to destroy the Afghan economy, you know, and people's jobs and people's livelihood. Like, you know, they do want to have cafes run... And they do want to, you know, people to have a certain amount of fun. 
I mean, alcohol is prohibited in Islam, so they they want to have. It was alcohol. always prohibited in Afghanistan, but it was much easier to get it sort of on the black market or from you know people at the embassy or whatever it was. And now it's it's kind of difficult. Yeah, it's very very difficult. Yeah, almost four months for me without a glass of wine. <laughs> Thank you, Tashiko. Um, um, but yeah, yeah, your most interesting story. What's been sort of what you found to just personally be the most eye-opening, or something mm. you thought was really? Well, I think it's. A lot. I think it's just access. We're able to drive and go all over Afghanistan. Yeah, it was craziest road. Yeah. Kurungal Valley to the Kurungal or to Noristan? What do you reckon? Kurungal Valley was the worst road. I think I've ever been on. And there was this one particular time being in the front seat, like photographing, and this like turn, and just that the road was so terrible that you could just see the wheel just going over that one little extra oh, bit. Yeah. And it's like, yep, I'm going to go off that cliff. You yeah, know, but I just closed my eyes. <laughs> and you look at the, like, the wheels of this ute, and it's bald. There is no tread on it. And... I asked the guy, like, you know, do you drive during the winter when there's snow? He's like, yeah, yeah, when there's snow and stuff, I still drive and stuff. He's like, fuck, man. I Bless him. If I was wintertime in Corrigal and I was on in his car, I, yeah, literally shit would be hidden in the cotton of my pants, definitely. Charming. <laughs> Ozzy is charming. But, yeah, it's just having full access to the country. It blows my mind. It's like... Of, you know, we've always been like, fuck, I can't go to this part here because there's Taliban checkpoints or, you know, the Taliban presence is way, way too high and security forces will tell you you can't go any more further than here. Um, yeah, so, you know. Now it's it's free reign, really. It's free reign. It's like a, an ability to be able to see Afghanistan completely. Yeah, by road. By road, by you know, any means possible, really. Um, what do you think the biggest misconception in the news about Afghanistan is? Misconception. Um, if there was any misconception, yeah, it's just what people think of the Taliban, really. You know, I think people think of the Taliban as these barbaric, cruel people, and I remember. But a lot of when, them are. Let's yeah. not. Pretend that they're not. A lot of them are. I mean, you know, when the Taliban first went into the presidential palaces, I was, oh my god, like the barbarians, yeah. the barbarians are at the gates, and it was just like, holy fuck, like these people are uneducated, unlearned, unlearned sort of thing, and you know, and they're now at the presidential palace, just hanging out and stuff, and just you know. But yeah, this is generally a misconception. There is, you know, the Haqqanis and they're very smart and um, very educated. Their wives are very educated. And you meet, like, you know, the first person you ever meet if you're a journalist and stuff is this guy called Ahmad Ahmad Zia. Ahmad Zia. And he is the most nicest Taliban you'll ever meet. Like... You go into his office and he's got all these like memes and stuff on how to be a good person and how to be, you know, how to be kind and courteous and patient and all of this sort of stuff. Like he's got all of those memes that you see when you have, you know, you go into, you know, some HR office in, yeah, <laughs> in some business, you know, in some office and stuff. And it's like, and he's super nice. And it's like, 
And yeah, he speaks English really well. And it's like, it blows your mind. It's just like, what? Okay, you know. All right, so wait a minute. Not all of these guys can be like totally bad and stuff. It's like, there's got to be some really assholes out there and stuff. You know, and like today I went through... Went through a few checkpoints. The security and stuff is really amped up because uh, of ISIS threat. And, you know, in the morning I went and bought some milk and the Talib guy came and saw me in my puffy jacket and, like, went through my whole clothes and everything and everything that I had and even touched my balls and stuff, hoping that, you know, I don't know if there was some <laughs> weapon in there. It was my weapon, of course. You but. never know. You may want to check, you know, as yeah. per the 1990s uh, Taliban rule. Yeah, you know, i got a prostate check, but don't let me tell you. Um, but, uh, you know, and then I went up the hill this afternoon and... Most nicest sort of like Taliban came by on my motorcycle. He like, you know, it's like he's put his hand on his heart. He was like very glad that a foreigner was like riding a motorcycle in Afghanistan. And he didn't even bother to check me and stuff. He knew that I was good. You know, it's like. And FYI, Jake has this dirt bike that he bought that does not like women. Anytime a woman gets on the back, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's very misogynistic. It uh, is. Um, it's just like, doesn't like a second person on the back of the bike. I don't know why, but just like, oh, yep, woman on the back zonk of the out, bike. Zonk out. No, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to die. Like, literally, I ride it by myself. I can ride it for, like, I've ridden, like, kilometres, like, into other provinces and stuff by myself. But the instant I have somebody on the back of the bike, it just wants to just go a few kilometres here and there. It's just like, oh, I'm going to mm-hmm. choke out. Um, talk to me about, I want to hear, I want you to tell about Bill Murray. Bill Murray. So uh, I made a movie called, worked on a film called Rock the Casper. FYI, Bill Murray is the only Hollywood person I would save in a fire. Bill Murray <laughs> is the coolest dude you'll ever meet. Yeah. Um, and... He, we, I'd, so I worked on this film called Rock the Casper. Um, it was uh, directed by Barry Leveson. The majority of the film was shot in Morocco. But Bill Murray, he turns up to Afghanistan because he wants to know about the role that he's playing and all this stuff. He just rocks stuff. up. Yeah, he just he rocks on up. He a plane, rocks up to Kabul airport. He's at the Gandamak, uh, this bar in Kabul. And he's, he's out there to party. Like, he wants to know about the Kabul nightlife scene and stuff and... I've been told, it's like, please don't kill Bill Murray. Like, you know, Bill Murray's sitting on the back of my motorcycle hugging me and stuff as we're driving from bar to bar. What year was this? This was like 2013, I think, or 2012. Yeah. And he just, he wanted to know everything about it. I guess. Like, Swedish ambassador, like, invites us over to his house. He's got, he's got his own bar. And stuff, and Bill Murray just goes into the bar and he just starts making drinks, and you know, and the, the, this kebabs being made and stuff. And Bill Murray's like, just like, yeah, he's just making Manhattan's, he's making all these different drinks, and he's just chilling out. And you know, all of these people find out Bill Murray's like in Afghanistan. It's like, really? No one believes this. So you know, they turn up to a Swedish ambassador's house, and the, you know, Bill Murray serves him a drink. You it's know. Party time. <laughs> it pretty much is. Um, so, yeah, uh, but yeah, there's a notice, please do not kill Bill Murray. Lo and behold, Bill Murray's on the back of my motorcycle as we're weaving through traffic, 
through Kabul and uh, you know. What about he, Anthony Bourdain? Was that in Afghanistan or where was that? Um, so I used to do some writing for a, 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 a sort of like online press called Roads and Kingdoms, and Anthony Bourdain was the ed- one of the editors and stuff of Roads and Kingdoms, and he sent me this message and he just said, Jake, like. These are the most incredible like stories I think I've ever heard from anyone. Like you, like I'd love to meet you and stuff. It's like oh well, I live in Istanbul. It's like five. You know, next time I'm in Istanbul, I'm you know let's get kebabs or whatever. Like just show me around Istanbul. Show me your Istanbul. You know. So you know, Anthony Bourdain turns up and stuff. Sends me a message and you know we go have kebabs. Um, we go down take the boat. You know he's the most loveliest guy. I think I've ever met and someone the guys I think I've like really admired in life because I think this is like this is where I want to be in life. I want to be able to travel and I want to be able to show people that there's more to war. There's more that, to a country. You know, and that is so hard to explain to people. I think when people think you're in a conflict zone that everything is is just it's just conflict, but there is People get on with daily life and there is still like in Afghanistan, it's just so much beauty. And the problem with trying to highlight the beauty is and what what's happened with me and with you is on this trip is just being attacked by people who who just want to see the conflict and how dare you show Afghanistan. And they take it as you're pretending the conflict doesn't there. And there's sort of these Internet trolls. And it's frustrating because there's so much more to Afghanistan than just its history of war. It yeah. has a history long beyond that. It has a history of resilience. Yeah. And, you know, there's still this comedy factor to Afghanistan. Like, people still want to laugh. And still people want to joke, you know. Um, you know they want to live the life. They want to live life to their maximum and full. There are weddings still going on, um, you know. Uh, even Taliban crack jokes and stuff, and they're quite funny. Like you know, favorite my, Talib joke. My favorite Talib story and stuff is like when we, me and Holly, returned back into Afghanistan, Taliban Afghanistan. This Afghan Talib just puts his head in, and he's got the most silkiest, like long hair and stuff. It's like, how do you get your hair so silky? He goes, head and shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> and he like. Just that little, that just that little, like your know, hair flick, uh, just was fucking hilarious. Like it, yeah, it's still a highlight. And then you know, and then you you meet some Talib and stuff, and you know you're in the car and stuff. He goes, oh, you're from Australia. It's like yeah, it's like oh, Steve Irwin, Crocodile Hunter, oh, my hero, my hero. Like I want to go to Australia to wrestle crocodiles. Can I come? And you don't want to be that arsehole that says, you know, no, because you're from the Taliban. You've like, you got to go say, you know, inshallah, you know, I'd love you too. And I think, you know, he would love it. Like, you know, he'd love to be able to go to Northern Territory to go see where Steve Irwin sort of are. People need to learn are. the world is much bigger than the mountains they lived in. Yeah. So, you know, you've got this one Talib who just, you know, lives in the mountains probably all his life, but he's watched the Discovery Channel and he's watched pretty much every Steve Irwin like video, and he loves this culture sort of thing. And this is like, you know, it's hard to describe, but you know, but one thing you said I remember when when we were coming in and we talked about 
whatever we were trying to sort of get out of Afghanistan personally, not just professionally, but you sort of said you wanted to find some, I guess, closure or, or reconciliation or forgiveness or something. But um, do you think you found that? Um, I'm not sure yet. Like, I think it's partially... For finding reconciliation, I really want to meet that Talib leader that's like he's devoted to try and fix the relationship between Afghans. I mean, Taliban's killed a lot of people that you... Yeah, that I love, you know. They killed my friend Karen Wu. Um, She was a medical aid worker that... I feel, like, responsible because I met her in London and she asked me about Afghanistan and I said, you know, it's a beautiful place and there's beautiful people and, you know, why waste your time doing a medical, being a medical doctor in London, you know, when you could do something fulfilling and just help save a few Afghan lives and, you know, gave her hope and stuff that came and her life was tragically ended in Badakhshan with another person who I admired, Tom Little, um, and it's really hard to accept and you know I had a student I used to work at an NGO called Skater Stand teaching kids skateboarding and this kid you know his name was Nawad and um, Nawad he fucking loved life he loved kick flipping you know like kick flipping was like his one thing he could do really well and he saw some young suicide bomber that wanted to blow himself up at uh, at the ISAF gates and stuff in central Kabul and came up to him and confronted him and told him to go home, you know. It was like it's not worth, like, ending your life here. Unfortunately, the suicide bomber blew himself up, killed Nawad, um, killed these little girls um, that were begging on the street, um, it was horrible, you know, and I think it was one of the first times I really understood the Afghan tragedy. Um, when he was killed, my my other students and stuff called me up and I went to help bury Nawad. Um, and we buried him up on the hill and I went to the mosque and I prayed with, you know, family I washed the body I mean the body was you know blown apart from but it was the first time I think I'd really felt what it like what it was like to be an Afghan uh, in this country and be accepted by Afghans uh, for doing such such an action um, so it's really hard to forgive the Taliban for killing such innocent people like Nawad. Um, and so, yeah, I still have these bands that are around my right side of my hand and I still keep these as a reminder and I feel like if I've fully forgiven the Taliban, I might actually take them off. And, you know, these have been on my hand for like over 10 years, basically. Um, uh, I don't know when I fully forgive them, but I'm hoping that one day there will be some leader that decides that they can work on a day of reconciliation. But I think it has to be more than that. It has to be it's sort of I don't know that you can just suddenly have reconciliation without some sort of process, I think. 
some sort of accountability, some sort of admission for the you know, the errors that were made. Um, and I think that has to come from, I guess, every side, really, because that's what war is. Yeah, from every side. But, yeah, it's just when the civilians, people like Nawaz's parents and stuff, can forgive the Taliban, maybe I, too, can do that as well. Mm. I think, uh, yeah, it's... I mean, the Ashraf Ghani government, they're gone. Like, <laughs> there is nobody coming to replace the no, Taliban. They're not going anywhere anytime soon unless a civil war breaks out here. But, I, I mean, it's always possible. I don't see it happening in the I think uh, we've, near future, but who knows sort of how the security situation will unravel. I think with the economic sanction that is imposed onto Afghanistan and the Taliban, this is the only thing that could cause cause a civil civil war to happen and i'm not sure if i feel like the west wants a civil war to happen there's just not a big choice right now it's either you let you keep the sanctions you let afghans starve or you somehow come up with some sort of you don't just hand it to them there has to be certain you know things that are met but there has to be conditions but I mean, look what happened when the Taliban was extremely isolated in the 90s and Osama bin Laden came in to give them not that much money, but they were the only, he was the only person doing it, and we don't want that again. No, we don't want extremist groups to come to Afghanistan. The Taliban understand this. Um, I keep expecting to see more, like, al-Qaeda sort of, like, influence and stuff. But they've been told to stand that buck yeah. down. They're not allowed to speak. They're, they exist, but they're told they can't can't take any action yeah for now for now but you know we would like people like al-qaeda not to have a safe haven in afghanistan and work on doing training or whatever and utilize this country for basically the al-qaeda is just folded into the taliban now yeah i mean the ideology and stuff it helped strengthen the taliban in its time of need during its 20 years um, but, you know, I mean, you have horrible people like ISIS-K um, and ISIS, and you don't want to see people like ISIS, like, take over you know, Afghanistan. Um, because the time during ISIS and me covering ISIS as a photographer, they were horrible times. And, you know, and what they did, yeah, it was beyond what I feel like, what human beings could do to other human beings, but, you know... Yeah, it's yeah. heartbreaking. You don't want to see that happen to Afghanistan. You know, you need to give this sort of, like, peace a chance and give the Taliban a chance to be able to restore some sort of govern- governance that's mm-hmm. right. And, you know, Taliban is not ISIS, you know, at the end of the day. And FYI, Jake and I are working on a photo book, um, sort of documenting Afghanistan. So we'll have more on that sort of soon, I guess. That'll come out in 2022. Yeah. So look forward to it. Have some cool pictures. Stuff you haven't seen yet in any news articles and Instagram. So there'll be sort of a lot that we kind of hopefully will tell a story with words and pictures and Give uh, give a visual to it. Yeah.
pretty much. Um, to it. And then I guess just finally, you know, it's obviously something that I grapple with, that I know you definitely grapple with, and that is sort of the the moral injury that comes with being a reporter, a photographer in, you know, constant sort of conflict zones um, and sort of how that has sort of shaped your life and what, you know, what you sort of would tell to other people that are wanting to go into this line of work. Moral injury is um, it's a, an affliction, really. Um, it happens to NGO workers, it happens to the military um, and photojournalists and journalists, people who cover conflict, um, especially or go to third world countries. And you, you feel like you're unable to make change. Um, it's... Um, you might make a little tiny dent or you might make it, you know, a change for one or two people's lives. But, you know, you might go home and you'll still see this like war still ravaging on or poverty or, you know, all these problems. And you're just like, you feel helpless. It's like, what can I do? I should go back. I should try and do, I should try and make people aware of things. Um, I guess I was multi-skilled by the end of, my time before I decided I, I I needed out because I was just finding myself in more traumatic experiences day by day. So I learned to be more of a combat medic and I learned to do triage and decide people who were going to live and who people were going to die. And like the last few years of my life uh, of being a war photographer, it was really difficult in Syria to get paid to do work or get your stories picked up because you were in an area where people didn't... I think I feel like governments were putting a heavy hand on editors not to take our work. So I didn't know what to do, and I loved Syria. I loved Aleppo, so I just worked with the white helmets and I worked with the doctors and stuff. When missiles you know, destroyed or barrel bombs destroyed homes and stuff and people were killed, I would go out there personally to go and help all these wounded people and get them out. And then later on with, you know, the battles of ISIS um, to try and help wounded civilians escape uh, from being human shields and get out of, out, of the, out of the cities and stuff. So, you know, I went to Raqqa and I went to all of these towns um, you know, trying to help out where I could. And photography meant nothing because, like, I felt like all these editors didn't want your pictures and they didn't want to tell the story and I felt like the Western world didn't care, but I cared. And so the only thing I could do was to still stay in this area and help out and do what I can uh, for these people because that was, in my brain, the right thing to do. And then... After a while, you become pretty much poor, penniless. Um, it's not a high-paying profession, people, if you're freelancing. Yeah. You don't make much money doing this. You might get a break. Um, I made a big break in Kobani, um, which, like, really sparked it off and got me some recognition where I managed to be probably uh, the first sort of, like, journalist to be in Kobani, uh, when there was finally changed the you know turned the tide and the Americans started bombing kicked Dash out uh, yeah Dash out of Kobani and I happened to be the only guy in there for like two three weeks 
And so I made bank. So Associated Press paid me literally straight up $45,000 for all of the stories and all of the photos that I had. This is not normal. Really, honestly, you get by with whatever you can get by with. Yeah. But um but you, yeah. you can make a name for yourself, you can you can do that. Yeah, you know, and people people call me up is like how did you do it? How did you get there? It's like literally the way that I got there was the Kurds showed me where the minefield was and which area to run. Mm. And don't don't change your direction, just go straight in that angle and you will not step on a landmine. I literally that was you know, I can't tell a young photojournalist, I think that's what I did because it's it's, stupid. Fucking, it's, it's stupid, stupid, it's suicide, but, um, you know, sometimes people want to make that name for themselves and they... We don't use... recommend you do it by running through a landmine. Just FYI, yeah. don't get carried away. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, but, you know, it was crazy times and, you know, I wanted... Part of me wanted to be famous, part of wanted, wanted people to know what was happening. So I was willing to risk my life um, to do it. Um, I'm much older now. I have a daughter. Um, she's getting much older. Um, and I start thinking about, uh, yeah, I would like to see her again and I'd like to see her grow up and, you know, get married or whatever she wants to do in life. Um, so, you know, you start making it more... Dynamic risk assessment, uh, DRA, um, on uh, what seems acceptable and what doesn't seem acceptable, and what is your percentage of probably making it alive, and what is your percentage of you're going to be in some sort of body bag, <laughs> mailed to some, you know, your country sort of thing, and it might take some sort of time. Um, yeah, so I had to think about these sort of things. Um, it was very depressing the last three years of my life um, especially during COVID time because I couldn't travel and you'd just be watching in the news and stuff things that were happening and I was just like I am not there and I can't get there you know I can't go to Syria I can't go to Afghanistan I'm stuck in Australia um, and nobody's going to give me a job to go out to these places um, to, to report so you know it was quite depressing. Um, first few years of uh, being back home in Australia, I, I got lucky and I worked as a travel guide for motorcycles. Um, and I m met some really good friends that ran a motorcycle workshop called Custom Commune and we became best friends really quickly. Um, so, you know, I helped do the media stuff for Custom Commune and we have our travel blog called Adventure Machine and we managed to be tour guides around India and Vietnam and um, go back to the Himalayas. And it was fantastic because it was just that ability to be able to travel and use this part of your brain. Of, it's like part, partial survival every day. Um, but, you know, you're taking these people and stuff and showing this experience. And it's very similar to war reporting and stuff that that desire to travel and see new places and eat new food and meet new people and, you know, and motor, motorbike riding, especially through India, was something I'd done for like over a year and I really loved the experience. So sharing that experience with others made me quite happy. I really loved being a tour guide, but COVID kind of killed that. 
So I guess just sort of finally, do you see yourself doing this forever? Do you, I mean, where, where do you see your sort of life in when you turn 50? So eight years, where do you see it? Um, I think with moral injury, I think uh, if somebody called me up and said, I want to go to this country, it's been fucked up and, you know, there's, you know, are you willing to come take photos and stuff, or video and stuff with me? Uh, come tell the story, I would probably just go say yes, you know. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I still feel something for the common man that's suffering um, and woman, you know. It's just, I feel like justice needs to be heard and said or seen. So I'll still keep on doing this, but uh, I think I'll try and spend more of my time having a normal life and uh, trying to live at home and, you know, I've gone back to things that I love doing, like making movies um, and storytelling. And I think through these years and experiences that I've lived, I can start working on writing stories and making films about things that I know about and feelings that I know about, um, you know, uh, be able to represent them into um, into a different format of living, you know, into a different format of life. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I feel like the next years of my life is working on making films um, and showing, uh, yeah, utilising things that I've learnt from experiences and people that I've met into storytelling sort of like you know mm. capability awesome and last last question favorite aussie expression favorite aussie expression bloody oh. hell fucking oath um out the bum no worries um translate for people <laughs> who won't understand that <laughs> uh, it was just like literally um I had a Catholic friend and stuff who were actually, he was like from 11 kids. Uh, yeah, he, I think he was like the seventh out of 11 children. And uh, it's a very Catholic saying sort of thing, up the bum, no babies. Um, yeah. Ooh, but, uh, I don't know how I got that out. <laughs> 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 but, you know, um, Australians like to make this, the mickey out of, out of stuff. But um, still, I love saying just send it. Um, yeah. Uh, it still goes down to um, Toby Price um, and just, you know, if if you really sort of like come into that thing, like, just fucking send it and just just go forward, just make it happen. Um, I would still say anybody that wanted to be a war photographer or things, just like, just do it. Just have the experience, go for it. If you don't like it, you can easily quit. But... Um, yeah, don't, don't start small though. Don't just plunge right in. Yeah, get to know the get to know. What yeah, I mean, I, I definitely started small and went up high, um, and then I came to my peak, Syria being the peak probably, and um, uh, I realised how far I could go uh, mentally. Um, and I knew it was time to end, um, and I'd learnt a lot about living. And surviving. So it's good to walk away. Um, yeah, and there's no harm in walking away. 
Thank you for coming on the Substack and telling us all about at Jakes and Confotos. No worries. No fucking wackers. <laughs> <laughs> That's your video story. All so. right. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. That's my American, my my bloody American accent coming out in me. All right. Thank all right. you. Easy. <laughs>